What happens when you combine the most innovative, eccentric and charismatic leaders, disruptors and founders from tech with the pedigree and history of one of the most established institutions within the City of London? Season four of the Searching for Mana podcast will be produced in partnership with the London Stock Exchange and will represent one of the most exciting collaborations in the tech space. I'm Lloyd Wahed, the host of Searching for Mana. We're going to be interviewing some of the leaders, influencers and disruptors in the tech space, where I'm going to be trying to dig in and find out what's their mana, their superpower, their magic. I'm more than a trifle excited about the next stage of this journey, and I hope you'll be joining me. Welcome on to the Searching for Mana show, Eric. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. We have Eric Stillman on the Searching for Mana show uh, this week. Incredibly excited to have uh, the co-founder and CEO of Rapid with us. Um, one of the, the, the biggest rising B2B fintech stories um, in Europe, or quite frankly, on the globe over the last several years. So really interested to cut into what the company's looking like today, what the plans are moving forward, but then also to take the audience back through your journey, which has been one of a uh, of real entrepreneur. So we go as far back as possible so that they can understand, you know, who you are, what your man has been, uh, and obviously therefore understand perhaps the culture that you've created. What would be brilliant is if you could just kick us off, not going to the founding story, we'll get there, but with what's the scale and what does Rapid look like today, please? So Rapid today is a company with almost 700 people operating in six countries across the globe, uh, providing uh, basically financial services infrastructure for other businesses to build on top of us uh, services for their own customers, which can be businesses or consumers. Uh, we have more than 30,000 clients uh, globally from the biggest companies on planet Earth, like a Google or an Uber, all the way to a small mom and pop shop in the UK that might use us uh, for something uh, specific. Um, moving billions of dollars on a daily basis uh, and basically operating the next generation of uh, fintech. Fantastic. If we were to list out similar type of companies um, that are in the competitive landscape or offer something similar, you would think of someone like Stripe perhaps? Yeah, Stripe is pretty much the, the biggest competitor that we have. They're an amazing company. By the way, they're also a very early stage investor in Rapid back in the early days. So. Yes, I saw that. Um, there's a few things our audience will be interested in. Certainly the operation and you know what constitutes this business and the services it provides, but also just quite frankly, the venture capital journey that you've been on. Um, and uh, I uh, noted that you know within the last year, you have rapid ventures now as well. Um, and so it'd be interesting to understand you know, strategically why you've done that. Um, and then also you've clearly been on a acquisition spree as well. So growing through acquisitions. So, so many things here that, uh, you know, when you get a business this scale, is really interesting and entrepreneurial to understand. So just before we do that, just to finish on the type of scale um, and what's going on in the current business right now, we've just been through um, Q1 and I think you had record results. Um, obviously we are, well, not obviously, but we are in... Um, in the middle of May in 2022, and the macro economy is not in a not in a good position. Um, you know, probably uh, a recession 
um, and we're seeing stocks um, just getting destroyed quite now. How does that affect the business that you have? So I think it's interesting to understand that for businesses like ourselves, these type of things come with very delayed, typically two quarters delayed from what you see, even three quarters delayed from the public stock market. Because at the end of the day, we serve businesses that do business somewhere across the globe. Uh, and you, we have two types of clients. We have the enterprise clients that grow on top of our platform and their growth will just slow down. It's not going to stop. I don't see a company like Uber or Google or other clients that we have you know, starting to decline significantly in their revenue. It's just going to slow down, which means their growth on top of our platform slow down. On the other hand, we have SMB clients and there, this is where the hidden part uh, begins because they're more affected from the low interest rate because these are clients uh, that used to borrow money uh, and they, you know, they, their entire business growth is based on lending from the bank or from third parties. Suddenly the interest rate is going up, it's going to affect them. Probably some of them are not going to survive. And there, you know, we, we definitely think that uh, later on this year, the end of the year, beginning of Q4 going forward, we'll see some slowdown around, you know, the, the small businesses that are being uh, onboarded into our platform. But generally speaking, you know, we still believe we're going to double ourselves this year and do 100% growth year over year. And probably next year we'll be more affected from this and our growth will slow down. But still, we believe it's going to be in the higher range of around 70, 80% even next year. Thank you for that tra transparent response, Eric. And of course, you know, you get to these, uh, these scenarios, you know, I'm sure when you first thought of having a business valued at 10 million, 100 million, a billion, you know, it's all pinch yourself moments. You get to a point where you're a decagon and then you're into a recession and you've always got to be planning. Um, how do you in this position then? Um, with those predictions possibly um, coming true where there could be slowdown for the business, how do you start entrepreneurially looking at what to lean into in your business model and what contingencies to take? So first of all, I have to tell you the, something behind the scenes story. I love recessions. I think it is the biggest opportunity for the strong to become stronger. And I've been waiting you know, for a crisis to, to start because we have massive amount of capital that uh, that was invested into the company uh, and we don't burn a lot of money so from our perspective cash is king and when cash is king companies like ourselves can become even bigger uh, so we actually were waiting and preparing ourselves for this situation over the last uh, eight 12 months nobody knew you know when exactly it's going to come but at the end of the day the shopping string or the acquisition that you know we're trying to do we slowed it down in the last six seven months intentionally because we thought we can get much better prices when something like this will happen. And now, you know, we're, we're like uh, animals. We're standing on the side looking who is going to be the weak one that we're going to go after uh, and to go after it very aggressively. I think for us, it's an amazing opportunity uh, to increase our business in some countries where maybe at the current stage organically we're slower and these type of acquisitions can actually uh, really provide us an amazing uh, kickstart uh, into growing fast in some markets. Absolutely. If we look at, um, you know, the most famous example, uh, probably Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway sitting on so much uh, dry powder for so long. And then, you know, the last five months uh, distributing more than ever. Um, it's, you know, when there's blood on the streets, that's when you got to get greedy, right? Um, yeah. So you've got a load of cash. Um, 
I understand that this can be good from an acquisition perspective. Why would you also have um, the venture arm? And what's the difference in the strategy from off the balance sheet in acquiring businesses to investing in businesses in the ecosystem? Yeah, so it's it's completely different strategy. Uh, investment, we're doing only into customer of ours, right? So we have clients that are on the platform. We see how their business is growing because at the end of the day, we are providing them payment services. So we can see the scale of the business. And a lot of times from our perspective, it makes sense to invest money into a client in order to lock down some kind of a longer term relationship with them on top of our platform as a client. And at the end of the day, double deep from the fact that he will grow faster. So our business will grow faster, but also our money will make more money from the fact that his valuation will grow. And the only investments that we do under Rapid Ventures are into clients. Up until now, it has been super duper uh, successful in the last 12 months. Uh, we have amazing clients that uh, scaled on top of our platform 10x, you know, over the last year. And also the investments themselves, at least on paper, uh, and as a VC, you always do stuff on paper up until your fund is over. So we can see that uh, it has been very successful. On the other side, the acquisition is not to client. It doesn't make sense for us to buy a client because we're in infrastructure, you know, for, for financial services. What we buy there is either old school payment companies that have a substantial book of business that we can migrate into our platform. And this way we buy something that is traded in a very low multiplier and move it to a much higher multiplier inside our own tech or an acquisition that will unlock for us strategic capabilities in a specific country. For example, one of the markets where we're currently very actively trying to do an acquisition is the Brazilian market. Because we're looking to basically acquire an entity that is an existing payments company regulated by the Brazilian Center Bank, have gone through all the heavy lifting of dealing with the regulator in this country, and basically will allow us to grow our business faster there. Thank you. Um, okay, I understand that. And you're on top of these macro trends where you can really see, uh, you know, how SMEs are behaving. Um, what would you say at the moment? Um, your and I know that slightly different question from a, you know, it puts you into a strong position. But what would you say is concerning from the trends you're seeing change in the market of these, as you say, you know, coffee shops that are out in the ecosystem? I think that we're starting to see very slowly, we see a trend of, you know, the SMEs less trying to expand into additional countries and markets and more focusing and double downing on, you know, their local territories, uh, just because the growth costs money and they want to spend less. Uh, so it's not that they don't know what to do business, but they're saying, listen, if I wanted to unlock two more countries, you know, in 2022, in order to increase my revenue, I don't think it is worth uh, my while burning the cash or lend, taking a loan and trying you know, to, to invest. I would prefer to sit on my cash or not to take the loan and risk my business. And I would stick to the existing market. And I think that we're seeing it very little of it now, but at, at Q4, we start seeing much more of it because the, if the interest rate will continue to go up in the same pace, it's definitely going to hit the SMB. Fantastic. Thanks for laying out the content context of where you're at right now we're going to come back to some things that i'm curious to dig into in the final part because then it really moves forward into future predictions uh and things that are topical and interesting let's go back now um because i want to get to the amazing founding story of this monumental business but let's let's go back and understand you first um so i'd like to get you to really think about when you might have first started being entrepreneurial, as far back as you could be kind to talk to the audience about, please. 
Well, I got my first computer at, at the age of four, at 1984, when most people on planet Earth didn't know that the computer exists. So my mother used to work for IBM, uh, and I got a computer, and you need to understand that I'm living in Israel, which means at the age of four, I do not speak English. I get a computer that only has a black screen. Windows did not exist uh, back then, no Mac, no Windows. And I had to use a vocabulary you know, to try and translate Hebrew to English to understand how I use a computer. And this is basically the beginning of my days as an entrepreneur, you know, starting to try and use a computer and, and play with it or do something. And then later on, you know, uh, the internet began. I remember when the first time I got an email and, and subscribed to a mailing list in order to see NBA results uh, in the morning because the newspaper only showed it delayed in a day, uh, which seems to people like ancient days, but it wasn't that far ago when it happened. And then I was recruited to the Israeli military, was released at the age of 21, and immediately I started my first company uh, post the military, which was basically in the unified communication and contact center space. All right, just to just to go back a little bit, because um, it's obviously the, the 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 military part is is super interesting. Uh, I was talking to um, Sashar, who's the founder um, of Curve. Uh, if, if you know him or the business, um, just expanding into America quite nicely. So, like, super amazing entrepreneur. Um, and uh, he had the military experience as well because he's, uh, he's from Israel as well. And it was quite formative for then who he became. I'm sure it mu must be the same for you. Actually, I want us to understand a little bit more because we've gone from there, you've got a computer um, to then the military. Like, you know, at school, were there experiences, were there influences you know, if there's any entrepreneurs listening to this um, that they could try and learn from, like, what was your identity at that point? Talk a little bit more about that, please. I think that one of the biggest things that shaped me as an entrepreneur is the fact that I, I saw the entire process of, you know, computers becoming, you know, things that people use on a daily basis. I understood that Windows is a new thing and it's not mandatory and there is something else working behind the scenes. I've seen the beginning of the internet and how it evolves. And, and basically I learned from each and every one of these things that happened, I learned what can happen potentially in the future, uh, you know, in other markets. Uh, so for people that uh, maybe started uh, to use the internet in 2008 and 2010, everything seems clear. It's pretty much the same thing, right? But uh, for me, I've seen the entire evolution. And I also saw, by the way, two crises, 2001 yeah. and 2008. Uh, where I learned endless amount of uh, things in these crises. And I think that is what shaped me at the end of the day uh, to be in a position to try and build a company as big as Rappi. So if you were, um, you know, somebody who is in education at the moment, would you be trying to be curious and read about and look into an experiment with everything to do with the blockchain? Yes, definitely. I think that at the end of the day, blockchain, has the potential to become as disruptive as the internet was, you know, when it came to everybody's lives at the, at the 90s. Uh, at the end of the day, it really depends on the use cases, right? And I think that up until now, except for cryptocurrency, nobody really implemented a killer feature, you know, that is related to blockchain. A lot of people are trying to do it in a variety of ways. Uh, but this killer feature that is a mass market feature, and this is not cryptocurrency, uh, it's still, you know, nobody cracked it, but there is the potential. Uh, and by the way, there is the potential it will go away because I don't know if you remember, but there were a lot of amazing technologies that really everybody thought that they were going to be life-changing and they ended up either small or 
disappeared completely from everybody's lives. Yeah, it's like the uh, the Internet of Things, um, right? Um, that the was supposed the Internet of Things exactly. By the way, before I started Rapid, I was about to start a startup in the Internet of Things space, and I really I I even have a deck, and I wanted to raise capital, and in the last second. I decided to pull the plug on that and to go to fintech. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I've been, uh, I suppose, in the business of trying to look at technical trends for 20 years now. Um, and as you say, over the course of a decade, there's, you know, always a few things that look relatively big. And when you look back, it feels like you could say that you'd obviously predicted which ones were going to be the ones. But uh, it's, it's, it's not that simple, is it? And, uh, you know, I think certainly from what I'm seeing with... Um, within blockchain, we're at a seminal moment now, forget the markets, there's a lot of talent in the space. Um, we're at a seminal moment now where the user cases need to come through. So we've seen some NFT user case come through, but you know, can we genuinely see uh, you know, huge adoption of DeFi? Can we see some businesses that are gonna be as big as Google come through? Well, you can see the foundations could be, but are there gonna be user cases that could be? And I think this next two years is where they're going to be a lot of effort for that to happen and i personally hope that it will but as you say you never know it might not yeah it all depends at the end of the day on the use case how how mass market it will be. do you think about it with rapid at all and uh i know you, i know you will absolutely yeah, no we we're definitely thinking about it we're even launching our crypto strategy and our crypto related products uh in, in the next 30 days so we're always there uh, but uh, we still have, you know, our own main business, which is a mass market business there to deal with. And it's still fiat currency and, you know, regular payments. Yeah. So the, uh, the journey that we were on, uh, thanks for going into that. That gives some more character. Um, you know, you then get to the, the, the military experience. You're there for three years. How, how was that? Talk us through that. Well, military in Israel is something that changes your life. You know, from a kid, uh, you turn into an adult uh, in a period of three years. Uh, you understand, first of all, that everything is possible. Uh, and if you really want to achieve something, you can achieve it. And I think these are the, this is the main output that I got from the military. Uh, because at the end of the day, I remember, you know, talking to one of my existing investors when I was still pitching to the general catalyst from the U.S. And they asked me, you know, what, what do you learn in the military? I said, listen, I learned in the military something very simple. If I really want something, I will be able to achieve that. And at the end of the day, they told me that they invested because I told them uh, the sentence. Um, but you, you learn perspective also in the military. What is actually, you know, what matters and what doesn't. And, you know, some entrepreneurs think that every small bad thing that can happen to a company is the end of their life. And they take it, you know, like, oh, my God, it is a disaster. And the military tells you that as long as everybody's alive, then everything is fine and the rest is fixed later on. And, you know, this is pretty much my approach on everything in business. Well, two crucial things to be, um, you know, someone in business where there's going to be constant problems that you need to not get stressed from, you need to lean into and have a growth mindset. But what is it? What is What was it on the first point in the military that... Um, made you understand that anything's possible is it, uh, to, just to give an example of uh, what it might be is it like well i don't know how i'd possibly do that discipline and then you know through the process and systems you learn it and you're like okay I could so do it. it starts it starts from you know one of the basic things that when you're in a military boot camp and you need to do push-ups right 
So they try to push you to do as many push-ups as you want. And there is always this, because you're a kid, you're 18 years old, you tell them, I can't do any push-ups anymore, right? And they tell you, ah, there is not such a thing as you can. You just don't want to do it. That's a different story, right? Uh, so it's, and by the way, it is true. There is all, you can always do more. Okay, you need to rest, but you will do more. But you say, I cannot do it. And this is the thing that they eliminate immediately. You never say you can't do it. You don't want to do it. That's a different story. So it starts from there and it goes into things that are crazy things that you see in a PlayStation, uh, uh, you know, Call of Duty game, right? That you need to do something which is completely crazy and you think that it's not doable, but at the end of the day, somebody comes up with the plan and it's doable. Yeah, so um, see why that's so useful for entrepreneurship. It's like if I go down to the gym on my own, then, you know, I'm, I'm good for like five uh, push-ups quite frankly and, then yeah. I went to... and if you take a personal trainer you <laughs> yeah. do the 20 yeah yeah I went to I went to a tennis camp last year <laughs> just to you know uh, kind of switch the mind off and, and focus on a task that I'm very bad at but actually the, the, the tennis was great but they did these boot camps twice a day and it was uh, you know I'd get to the end of a circuit and be like oh my god I'm completely done I can't believe I could even do that and then they're like we're gonna do this three more times and you're like I do not comprehend how I can possibly do it but you do you manage to you do, do it do. yeah and it just shifts that whole mindset and by about the fourth day I was looking forward to it uh, it's some weird <laughs> psychology isn't it yes it is definitely fantastic so then then we move out of that with these uh, mentality and uh, the uh, you know, you've become a man at this point. What do you go and do next? So when I was released from the military, I decided that I want to start my own company. I skipped university. I admit my father took it very hard because he was a university professor. And he told me that I'm going to be a bum and I'm not going to make a single cent. Apparently he was wrong. I was right. Different story. And I decided, you know, to start a company in the unified communication and space. Uh, I started as like a system integrator that was basically doing big projects for banks and telco companies. And then at a certain stage, we basically found that small niche that we can productize. And we built a product that became a very successful uh, unified management platform for cloud, for contact center and unified communication systems uh, that worked with Avaya, Cisco, and all these, uh, these big brands. And we ended up building a company for 10 years that then was sold in October 2013 to a company called Avaya, which is one of the biggest manufacturers uh, of unified communication equipment. And we sold the company after 10 years of basically building bootstrap uh, business, we worked for two years uh, for Avaya. And then we left at the end of 2015 and we started Rapid. Just to go back, um, that was bootstrapped the whole way then. Which was a big mistake, by the way, even though it was, it was an amazing business, super profitable, completely bootstrapped. We were four people. We owned the entire business completely with no VCs. But when we sold the business, we learned it was a big mistake not to bring third-party investors because the price that we got for the business was much lower than what we could have sold it if it was backed by an external investor. Yeah. And then, you know, the um, story there sounded like it quite quickly became successful. You said, no, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't quickly. It took... It took, I think, between five to six years to really become successful. It, it, at the beginning, in the first two, three years, it was you know, awful. It was very challenging. You're doing, you're doing projects for these big telcos and banks that always delayed with payments. You need to find a way to finance the company. 
you're not really building tech uh, and you're getting bullied around by these big organizations. Uh, and it took, I think, five, six years until you know we built a product that we can actually sell as software uh, that became something that uh, can be sold in the mass market. And you know we went from Israel to Europe to the US and it became a very successful product. So um, if you look back on that, would you recommend to, you know, two, three, four co-founders like you guys at that point, that that was with all of that, you know, hard time, pain, challenge for six years, but then at the end, an event, which could have been bigger, like you said, if you'd got a, a third party investor, uh, but it is what it is. Would you say that five or six years was wasted or in your journey um, productive? No, it was very productive. It wasn't uh, wasted, but you need to remember it's different times in the world, right? In 2002 or 2003, raise money from venture capitals was like flying to space, okay? Except not everybody could have done that. And you, you, you didn't have a lot of VCs and it was very complicated. So back then it made sense to build bootstrap companies up until a certain stage and then to raise capital. Yeah. In today's world, with so much money in venture capital, you know, ability to raise money from angel investors and then the end, uh, it doesn't make any sense to be bootstrapped unless you really think you can build something up to a very high valuation and then get investors, you know, in a later stage. Yeah. Um, so then let's come to the origin story of, um, of Rapid. And it's, you guys have waited from 2013 to 2015 with various exit clauses, I'm sure, for the deal. And then it's the same founding team who move on. Yeah, it's the same founding team. So it's a funny story. Uh, you know, sitting, thinking, what do we want to do next? Uh, and one of the founders basically went uh, to a bachelor party in the Czech Republic with uh, some of his friends. And he came back uh, and we were sitting like uh, eating lunch and he said, you don't understand. I got screwed on FX all over, all over. Like every single payment I've done, every ATM I used, like, they killed me like uh, on FX. I look at all, I kept the receipts and he's putting the receipts on the desk and he shows us that he was charged 3%, 5%, 7%, 2%. And it like, it was wow. And we didn't understand anything in financial services, right? So we don't, we didn't even understand how the world works for money movement, FX and everything that is related to it. But when you looked at the numbers, it just didn't make sense to us that money costs so much money, right? It just can't be. So we said, okay, let's whiteboard it. And we started to basically play around with an idea of trying to resolve the FX problem. Uh, that, by the way, back then it was 2015, it was very popular to try and uh, resolve the problem. And we ended up with an idea to basically build a consumer facing uh, e-wallet platform that was called Cash Dash. Yeah. That the, the purpose of it was to basically kill all the physical exchange boots, kill TravelX and all these players and become you know, the biggest exchange that is directly to consumers, like a type of an Uber for money, uh, which was the original idea. Uh, and the biggest mistake that we've done is that we just didn't understand how complicated it is to be in financial services. And we said, okay, let's do it. And we decided to do it. And we stumbled into every single problem that exists on planet Earth when you're trying to build something in, in, in payments. You need to get regulated. You need a compliance team. You need to understand what is risk, AML, money laundering, sanction screen. Nobody's willing to open a custodian bank account for you because all the banks don't want to do it. 
nobody's willing to process payments for you. FX is super complicated. Suddenly you understand that like not every single bank and not every single provider can do it. And we wasted almost a year in trying to launch in the UK. We launched in the UK a solution, but the amount of investment that we've done to launch in one market, the amount of infrastructure that we had to build was so big. Dealing with the regulator and doing all these things was so crazy that it just didn't make any sense for us to continue because we said, listen, we want to be global. We did one country. We spent like $3 million or whatever it was to launch in a country. and we'll have to do it now country by country. It's different in the world. Like every country is different. The European Union is not really a union, right? Every country has its own tricks. Yeah. And we said, wait, it doesn't make any sense. It feels like we're building data centers to store servers. And it's 2016, 17. AWS existed. We said, yeah. somebody has to be a platform. We looked around, no platform. And we decided to basically pivot the play and say, listen, let's just build a platform that other companies, when they will want to build a cash dash, they will be able to build it on something that actually is super scalable, super easy. They don't need to do all the heavy lifting that, that we did and they can do it globally. And that was the idea to turn cash dash into rapid. We turn it into this infrastructure play. And from there, the company in your scale super fast and exploded moving from Europe to Latin America, to APAC, to the US. And today I can literally tell you that if somebody wants to build exactly the same thing, it took us a year and we spent $3 million to build. He wants to build it. He can do it in three to four weeks on top of our platform. Yeah, so fantastic. So lots of like engineering the, the strategy would be one of the reasons you guys have been so successful, not, um, you know, being so stubborn that you carried on with the consumer facing business as soon as you saw just how much logistics and effort and regulatory um, requirements there were in, all the territories. So, you know, it's, it's a mindset and it's hard work, but it is also being really clever in the moment and being prepared to say, Hey, we got that wrong. Let's consider this though. Listen, failing uh, is very important and admitting in failing is even more important. The first thing that I ask people in an interview, when I interview them is where did they fail in their life and business? And what did they learn from this? Because Somebody that was always successful, it's complete BS, right? There's always there is a mistake, always there is a failure. Uh, and the failures are the ones that are important because I know that if he fail with it and he knows about it, the chances he will do the same mistake here down the corridor are low, right? And if he's always successful, then he's going to fail. And the sort of danger, there is a high risk he's going to fail with me. So um, in terms of that, um, what then was a huge... Um, ascendance in terms of scale of organization we've discussed how externally that affects the market but internally so you just hint about you being involved in the interview process i think there's two things i'm really interested in um the second we'll get on to like what are you doing where are you spending your time like when you're the ceo of a business of this scale but before we do that just a little bit about about the journey really like what has that experience been like to go from, you know, like you say, first year spending 3 million of investment to then just this monumental scale and growth of a business. Um, and how have you been personally uh, making sure that you're, you know, primed and at 100% to make sure you're making the right strategic decisions along that way? So I think that the biggest change was actually me personally, uh, because my job changed so much over the last six years. 
Like I cannot recognize my day to day comparing to what I used to be, even in the bootstrap uh, company, right? I'm a product and engineering uh, person. I'm always in the weeds. I always talk to the engineers. I talk to the product managers. Up until a scale of around 50 to 75 people of Rapid, uh, I was in the details of every single thing. I knew every feature. I knew almost every line of code. I spoke with all the engineers. I ran, at the end of the day, product and engineering together with my product and engineering people. Uh, and at the certain stage, when it scales, you're detaching yourself from the core and you're starting to manage more on the macro level things, right? You need to manage the relationship with investors, the strategy around fundraising, the marketing and the brand. You need to become an ambassador of the company. Uh, you need to make decisions of recruiting uh, type of people that you never thought you would recruit because you thought it's a waste of time, but suddenly you need them like project managers uh, and bureaucracy related people that as an entrepreneur, you don't like these things because they slow you down, but you understand at a certain stage as a CEO of a company that if you will not put these people in place as a CEO, you will not have visibility into what is going on and you will not be able to make decisions. And then learning to work with these people in these positions, uh, interviews, newspapers, you know, you're suddenly involved instead of 80% of the time doing product and sales, you're doing 80% of the time the work of a president of the United States, uh, which is quite different. And Eric, when you've got then that, you know, overall um, responsibility for the shape of this business, were there any very strong cultures that you put into place? And, uh, you know, maybe if you could expand on, on how. Um, so I, I'll give you again an example, as I'm sure you probably know, you know, um, in uh, Airbnb, uh, they decided that their offices would be um, replicas of Airbnb, uh, Airbnbs that you can go and uh, rent out in the market so that everybody really was living in the product. Um, and then you have, you know, famously, which has not gone down well recently, Netflix being incredibly no rules, you know, like we don't care how many holidays you take, like we believe we are the right people, this would be good for the culture. And you've got everything in between. So what what has yours been and has it been some things that were very strong that you put in place? Uh, so one of the strongest things that I put in place, even during COVID, and, I, and it was one of the biggest things that drove the company into big success and scale, was the fact that I kept the office. I said, everybody's working from the office. Uh, and at the beginning, people told me, you're crazy, and, and it's not doable, and people uh, cannot do it. But at the end of the day, nothing replaces human interaction and the whiteboard sessions. And the fact that I basically uh, insisted on continuing and keeping the office while you know, all the other CEOs of other companies told their investors how amazing it is and how productive it is that their people are working from home, which is complete bullshit. Um, you know, it really allows us to scale and, and gain significant advantage on our competition because we were very focused on what we were doing. And you know, we were still meeting each other daily, whiteboarding, making decisions quickly. And, and from my perspective, even today, uh, in a post-COVID world that we're starting to look in, I still make sure that my teams rotate between offices worldwide and work together like at least a week in a quarter, face-to-face, -face, and not only doing Zoom calls and you know emails and Slack and WhatsApp because human interaction matters a lot. Do you think that's with your particular nature of business or do you think some of the market's naive? I think the market is naive. I think that uh, people learned... You see the Netflix stock, how it's tanking. 
and you see that it tanked below the valuation that they had when COVID started in March 2020. Yeah. Now, you need to ask yourself why a company like Netflix scaled during COVID if everybody were working from home very productively. And the answer is everybody were doing Netflix subscriptions because they're less work and they watch quite a lot of streaming. And that's fine, okay? But at least you need to tell yourself the truth. Working from home is not productive in tech for the majority of the positions. Yes, you can always find a position in tech that maybe working from home would be productive for. It's not engineering. It's not product. It's typically also not sales uh, at a certain scale. Uh, and I think that uh, if you look at the mirror and you tell yourself the truth and you make decisions that are reflecting the culture of the company that you want to run, at the end of the day, the results will come with it. And this is what's happened here. Yeah. Um, the uh, example somebody gave to me, which I quite liked visually, was, you know, over COVID, you couldn't really tell about any decline of performance because it's like an, an airplane where the, you know, the fuel has been taken out of it. It can, it can still glide, but at some point exactly. it's not being propelled anymore. Uh, and I think we start to see that. Um, but look also, also at the, the churn of employees of working from home. You don't have a connection to the business that you work with. You don't have friends. You don't have anything. You want to move, you click a button, you move. Uh, and this is something that, for example, here didn't happen because people are engaged with each other so the churn is very low. Yeah. So um, let's now um, think about moving forward. Um, we've uh, taken a lot of your precious time up. So just a few more questions from me. Um, you know, you're sat on circa a 15 billion valued um, business. So firstly, congratulations. Um, we... Uh, I, or I read that you said, um, you know, Rapid is not a, a 50 million pound business, it's a 50 billion pound business. And certainly the TAM in this type of market could even take it further, like dare to dream for us. Uh, and you take the time frame where you want to, but not just about money or valuation, but like how big no, can no, this be? I will explain to you very easily. And this is the example that I give everybody from, from 2017 when I provided basically a vision and I stated that we want to become the Amazon AWS of the fintech space. And what does it actually mean? When you have today, you know, two people sitting somewhere and thinking about building a startup or a meeting at a big enterprise that somebody wants to launch a new service, there is one decision that is pretty much automatic. We're not going to build our own data center and we're not going to put the servers in the office. It's going to be AWS, Google Compute Cloud, Azure. That's pretty much and from there, decisions begin. But this decision is already made because everybody's already in cloud computing. And that's my goal with Rapid and everything that is related to building financial services. My goal is in five years down the road, when this meeting will happen, about anything that is financial services related, collecting payments, disbursing money, issuing cards, lending, whatever it is, we're going to build it on top of Rapid. That's going to be their thing. Uh, and that's the goal of the company to basically become the world's infrastructure for financial services for any type of any scale of a business. Doesn't matter if it is a Netflix or a Google or an Uber, all the way to a small startup, a mom and pop show that wants to do business online. And this is where we want to be. And from a money and evaluation perspective, it should and will bring us to 50 billion plus, uh, again, depending on the market conditions, depending on a lot of stuff. But like you said, the time is so big in this business yeah. That if we'll be able to be successful, the valuation is going to be massive. I absolutely love it. The whole searching for mana um, show 
much like my career is about trying to find, you know, what are going to be the generational ventures. Uh, and it's very exciting to talk to someone who's who's possibly <laughs> got one of them. So again, congratulations. There's a there's a few questions now I want to go into um, that we ask everybody. Um, so I'm going to just um, fire through those before I do that. I mean, that's a, a, about you as an entrepreneur. The final question, um, or it's remiss of me to not ask this, is to get to that you need to go public or want to go public. You don't need to go public. Uh, but you will go public at a certain stage just because at a certain stage your investors will want liquidity and also gaining more value and the higher valuation is required in the public markets. When will it happen? It can happen in three years. It can happen in five years. Yeah. Who knows? But at the current stage, nobody's in a rush. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so what is the most important book that you've read or would like to recommend? Uh, the most important book that I read is actually the Warren Buffett uh, book. Uh, and I super recommend it just because it, you know, it's from a different type of an industry, different types of investments. People thought that these type of investments are already not relevant because tech is moving the world and et cetera. But at the end of the day, when you understand how the most successful investor in history makes decisions, uh, it would also affect your decision-making uh, process. Um, snow Snowball book from Warren yeah. Buffett yeah it's yeah. A, it's a thick book guys but um I've read it twice now it's uh, so unbelievable uh yeah. and like you say it's very refreshing in a market which is so venture capital um is like a uh, eulogized at the moment to listen to somebody who's who basically says like let's say you got 20 investments in your whole life like how precious are you going to be with those investments it's just a nice way to balance out the thinking yeah. um, what is your proudest achievement uh, proudest achievement. I think my my daughters and my family. That would be the biggest achievement for me. Yep, lovely. And what is your biggest fear? Uh, my biggest fear. You know what? I'm not sure. I have. I have one. They. They. I can't. They... I can't. They knocked that out of you in the military. <laughs> no. Probably, yeah. Probably no, I, I don't have, a, you know, some kind of a massive fear. Okay, that's the first person who said that. That's interesting. Most yeah, people, well, so most... there, there are things that there are things that always bug me, right? Business recruiting is super complicated to find good people. Uh, dealing with regulator is complicated, but it's not a fear. It's just bugs you, and you always think about. It. I mean, obviously, I'm the founder of the Mana Group, so that recruitment um, stress. No, no problem. You just come to us. Um, if you were to star on the cover of Forbes, and you probably are going to, what would the headline say? Uh, well, the headline would say, biggest company in the history of Israel. Boom. Love it. Um, who would you recommend to come on to the Searching for Mana show that would be interesting? Wow. Um, it has to be from tech. Well, whatever, whatever. We'll see. Uh, I would take, I don't know if you can get him, but I would take Michael Jordan. It would be the most interesting thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd love to do that. My, my lucky number is 23 as well. Yeah. Uh, we're starting to get there. Starting to get there. Maybe yeah. ne next season we could go to Michael Jordan. 
Um, and then the last question, it's the search for Mana show. So Mana is magic. Uh, what would you say your Mana is? Uh, I think the Mana is that, I don't think that there is something that is impossible. Like the number one sentence I learned in financial services is that it's impossible and it doesn't work this way. These are the two things that always people say in FinTech. And I think that rapid proved again and again and again that everything is possible and every boundary can be broken. Absolutely love it, Eric. Thank you so much for your time. Um, again, congratulations on the success today. Uh, and I'm convinced there's nothing that is going to stand in your way to succeeding with the vision that you have, which will be incredibly useful for, for the planet. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great being here.